Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welcome to my Just Penny podcast. With me today is one of the world experts on narcissism and uh, she's got this incredibly popular podcast called navigating narcissism she's also a best-selling author uh, new york times etc she's a phd clinical psychologist super smarty pants and i happen to know in addition to all that she's a great girl because she's friends with a dear friend of mine l <laughs> and so uh welcome to my podcast dr romani who goes by her first name and so starting there, why is that? Why is the last name rarely used? I wish we lived in a world where people could pronounce my last name, but mm -hmm. I have, you know, it's, it's Dervasala, which actually isn't that hard when you say it, Yeah, but it is enough where people just were not, I mean, Romani was enough for them, right? It's its own conversation <laughs> and its own day. Why people could learn to, you know, pronounce other names like Schwarzenegger or Stephanopoulos, but they yeah. certainly <laughs> could learn Dervasala, but they chose not to. So, um, and then oh, when I was a professor, I was a professor for 22 years, mm. the students got into the habit of calling me Dr. D, you know, which felt a little bit too like rapper for me, mm -hmm. which um, probably could have been hit by. But then I think that what happened was some of my clients started calling me Dr. Romani and then in some of my media appearances, they started calling me Dr. Romani. And then it was a combination of recognizing the work that went into the degree, but also an approachability. I, I, I was fine with it. And, yeah. uh, but it is Dr. Romani. Dravasala is the full name, but Dr. Romani is fine. And on social media, you're at Dr. Romani spelled out yep. doctor. Yep. So people mm -hmm. can find you that way. And I guess there's a level of comfort with Dr. Romani as opposed yeah. to with Dr. Romani Dravasala, because it's sort of feels familiar yet still yeah. doctor because I totally agree. You so, earn yeah. that mm -hmm. thing. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. And you do such good work and such interesting content online and on the podcast. And I want to talk first about a recent episode that you did where you talked about cohesive co uh court it was abusive coercion coercion abuse coercive and, control. Thank coercive you. control. Mm -hmm. And and what I wanted to get into first with this whole concept of coercive control and abuse and narcissism and narcissists in relationships is off the bat, how does one tell the difference between regular conflict in a long-term relationship or short-term relationship versus something rising to the level of abuse? Because I think anybody in a long-term relationship will say, well, we've had fights or there's been this thing or that's happened. But at the same time, oh my gosh, we're so good, or there's so much love and it's so wonderful. So how do you sort of distill it down to know when there's really a real significant something versus just sort of the everyday relating to one another? Because relationships can be hard. 
Well, again, what arguing is actually healthy for a relationship, you know, so it's not that arguing in and of itself is the issue. In fact, arguing really shows that people kind of have skin in the game and they are willing to bring strong emotion to something mm. and may even are even willing to be vulnerable in that emotion because arguing doesn't necessarily just mean that we're bringing anger, but we might also be bringing sadness and other emotions. The issue is how do you fight? Right. Mm. Is it, you know, are, is, are you engaging in insults? Right. Is somebody is, in the argument, are people mocking people's appearance or accomplishments or how they spend their time? It's like, you're a lazy, no good, such and such, something like that. Or you're a hideous, or you, you know, I can't believe I'm with someone who looks like this. Oh, That's now, now we're into abuse of fighting. Right. The use of the, the, the regular use, listen, everyone has slipped in an argument and maybe let an obscenity off the FU or something like that. But this is the, on a regular basis that that kind of disparaging language is used. And it's clear that it's landing as disparaging language. Listen, different relationships have different rules of engagement. And some people will say, listen, we curse. Mm -hmm. It's just sort of, it's, it's our language versus somebody who will receive that and get a sting from that. That's a problem. It is also the, it's disrespect. Mm. It, 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 that goes back to some of the abusive language, like I said, criticism and all of that. But it is really a devaluation. It's the you're nothing, mm. you know, you're nothing without me, you know, and and contempt. Contempt's a big one. Those are the things we're looking at when we're thinking about it being abuse. We're also looking at gaslighting, which is a denial of someone's reality or denial of reality in general. Like I never said that you're absolutely out of your mind. You know, you better go see a doctor, get your memory checked because you're always recalling these things aren't that aren't true. And let's say you do pull out the phone and say, here's the text message. They'll say, great. I'm in a relationship with someone who's paranoid. That's wonderful. That's not what I signed up for. So it's that kind of not only denying reality perception and experience, but then telling somebody that there's something wrong with them when that's done. All of these are hallmarks of what we call an abusive relationship. Then you'd also want to look at control. We're talking about arguing now, right? So yes, all relation, all relationships, we could be right now. It sounds like we're talking more about intimate relationships. Sure. It's any human relationship. There is, there's going to be conflict, right? That's yes. the nature. That's the nature of the beast. Other things that are also problematic and could be over time abusive and in conflict is a silent treatment. So somebody doesn't oh. like where the conversation is going. They just completely shut down. Now shutting down happens, right? It's a nervous system response, but there can be awareness of that shutting down and saying, this is all overwhelming me. I am going to step away from a for a moment. I will be back, but right now I can't. I need this break. I, yes. I need this break. I need this moment. It's about asking what you want, other than, but other instead of punishing someone through silence. So those are the things we look for. But for it to really qualify as abuse in any argument, yeah. some one single argument, somebody can really be awful, and they'll even say, "This is not me." We look at also at post conflict post-argument behavior yeah. was there a meaningful attempt to make amends so did the person generate a meaningful apology not i'm sorry you feel that way or you oh, always push me too i far. hate that i'm right? sorry you feel that way go yeah. fuck yourself it's There's not an apology no it's not, that's not an apology but a, a genuine apology is i behaved really badly i am so sorry i hurt you yes that's not enough though for it to really not be abusive, then the behavior has to change. That in a future argument, the person does, doesn't do exactly the same thing. It can't keep being a dry erase board where the person keeps doing terrible things 
maybe issues a good apology and then repeats the 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 behavior that's also not going to fly so when we're looking for sort of abusive levels of conflict we're looking at it being sustained it keeps showing up over and over and over again and some of these other patterns like manipulation like gaslighting yeah. like invalidation are a regular part of the relationship i also like because i've heard you speak obviously and, and read your work um, this idea of narcissist's unwillingness to take any accountability and to to do any of the work and a lack of compassion. And I, I, I feel like that would be a red flag for people initially, but I, maybe it's not because narcissists can be super crafty, right? They can hide all that. Right. So, you know, we, we say that if somebody is is you're saying, what do you say? They lack compassion or they don't. Or they're, um, they have little to no accountability. In- okay, they're not accountable, right? So all those things. What the, the problem is, is that a relationship is a slow burn, right? It's not as though some on the second date, and if somebody is showing all that lack of compassion and Run. lack of accountability on a get second date, out. you yeah. can get out, right? Yeah. But, you know, sometimes some of these patterns, they are lack of accountability can show up as things like, oh God, I'm so sorry I'm late. Like, I, I am my job. It is so, so busy. And I, you know, I, I have to take these calls out the office and we had this last minute trade we have to deal with. And that that's plausible, right? So the reason they're late is the office, the, 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 the trade, the, this, the, that. Okay. And then another time, okay. A few weeks later, like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. I have to cancel this dinner. I had promised my friend weeks right. ago, months ago, years yes. ago, I would do this bachelor party thing. The excuse that is that that to me is also a lack of accountability because yes. at the time the person made the dinner plan with you, they knew if this was happening years ago, of course, you knew this was happening. Yes. If the person was going to be delayed because of the trade, they could have called you or they could have said, Listen, I know there's often problems coming out the office for me, so we may need to meet at eight instead of seven or whatever. Or that is also lack of accountability. And yes. so, I think that we think lack of accountability is a gotcha moment. You did something bad, and like, I didn't do that. It's not that simple. And that's why people miss it because the idea that someone was held yeah. up late because of work or the yeah. idea that somebody double booked, that is not, that's not a, we're, most of us aren't going to lower the boom because of something like that, but it is to pay attention to that in the context of other behaviors and Heated. even the lack yeah. of, right, right. And the lack of compassion. I mean, compassion's a hazy construct. It also means different things to different people. Compassion in essence is really empathy and action. So empathy is the feeling. Compassion is translating that into something. So compassion is, you know what? I really don't want to go to my cousin's wedding shower. It's a three hour drive away, but my goodness, she has, she was so, a long time coming and she's really nervous about it. I'm going to go, right? So even if it meant throwing your life, because a compassionate thing is to maybe show up for someone, even when it may not necessarily work or do something for someone when you might even already be stretched thin. Compassion is taking that feeling, you're making the phone call to someone you're knowing, know is having going through a tough time. Because it's so hazy, we may sometimes miss, like, for example, a narcissistic person might say, like, let's say somebody finds a narcissistic person abrupt because they always are. Then somebody will be like, ooh, well, that, that was a lot. You just said that. And the narcissistic person will say something like, you know what? I just believe in straight talk. You know, I call things mm. the way they are. I, I'm a deeply honest person. Then 
the other person's like, oh, they're deeply honest. Maybe I'm the one who is, mm. you know, I thought I wanted someone honest and you get quite confused. So the key to this then Jenny becomes, we have to have our clarity on how compassion shows up for us. We have to have clarity on what accountability means. Nobody on a second or third date is going to say to someone, I don't want to see you again because you were held up because of work, especially if they had a job where, I don't know, there were a nurse or something like that where right. like, uh, they, they, there was a, I had to, we, it's, it's been terrible. There was a bunch of emergencies that came in. We, we may not be as quick to shut someone down say, my gosh, they do have an important job or they do have a very taxing job. So of course they were a little late, but what we can do is look for a pattern. If this keeps happening and they're not communicative, it doesn't even have to be an indictment of this person. You don't even have to call them narcissistic. It's really the sense of this doesn't work for me. Correct. Okay. And because you had said before, this can also show up in all kinds of relationships. I'm thinking about parenting and how there are these moments in parenting. And I know even for, for me, I try to be super conscious, right? Of what mm. I'm saying and why I'm saying it. But I can get tripped up when my adult children start there could be an argument and clearly there's something else going on there's a subtext mm -hmm. of the argument mm -hmm. that may have nothing to do with me yeah. and and yeah. as soon as i start to get riled up because who better who can push your button better than your children right. and i mean right. your husband maybe or your partner maybe but like your kids are pretty darn good at it when they're by yeah. that point and i'll take this beat and i'll say wait a minute before i fly off the handle and go off the deep end because human um and i'll Take a step back and say, okay, wait, this is my child, an adult, but my child, I need to, I need to step back and see what's going on there and bite my tongue for them is that can become sort of compassion and empathy or an understanding that something else is, is going on with them. Right. And I think that even using the, the concept of bite your tongue almost makes it sound like it's self-punitive and and overly restrained. I'd say that, you know, when we're talking to a child and we want to jump in there with something else or a partner, or anyone we care about, yeah. and we know that there could be subtext, yeah. it may not even be so much as biting our tongue as allowing the moment to unfold. Okay. Right. And that's, I mean, again, that's, that's therapist talk, right? Yeah, but there's sure, times, of course. you know, as a therapist, a lot of what we do is we have to sit back yeah. And almost wait that five seconds after the oh, last word is said. Brutal. You have because, training. Right. Yes. Because I think that, and we have to almost check our own egos. Why do we feel the need to jump in? Who do we think we are that what we have to say is so important that it has to get out there is you sit there, you give the five seconds, they finished. And in that five seconds, a lot can happen in the, in the human nervous system in five seconds. A lot of that gets processed. The person feels as though they were allowed to almost like completely unfurl. Assuming it's not abusive, just there's some no, no, sharing, no, 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 I'm right? not, yeah, yeah, yeah. And that then you say, you, the first thing you say, you, in fact, the, one of the best things you can say is, okay, I, and you don't want to sound like a shrink. A lot of people get mad, like, oh, you're not my shrink. But, you know, you can say something like a little bit of a recap, like, okay, it it sounds like it has been a really, really tough week at work this this week. Um, and then whatever whatever unfolds from that, it could very well be that a more momentous conversation can be put on pause or mm -hmm. whatever it may be. But I think it's, it can't always be drama, like person can't always have stuff going on. But sure. I think we can, and it's not usually the case. But I think when we do that, we let and we really are listening, right? We're, we're, giving the mm -hmm, 
uh, you know, nods, like people want to feel heard that I think that's, that's, I mean, that's almost like more of a communication issue than yeah. anything that relates to narcissism. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. I, I, that's such good advice too, because you're right. That active listening piece mm -hmm. can be so uh, helpful in somebody's struggle. Cause sometimes that's all someone wants. They don't even want yeah. the that straight talk and the advice and the no. tell me what to do. They just want to be heard. You know, there's a great piece in the New York times and I wish I could remember the woman who wrote it, it was such a great, it was such a great article so much so that I actually cited that piece in my, in my book that's coming out in February. Mm -hmm. And she said that the writer of the article said she was talking to someone who was like a preschool, first grade, something, a young early childhood educator. And asked her, how, how do you like when all these kids have all this stuff going on, how do you connect with them? And, and what the person in the article was writing about, she said that that early edu early childhood educator would say, I'd really turn to the child and ask them if they want to be help, heard or hugged. Oh, and I think that's it. That, that, that was, it was that simple. Oh, I'm that I writing think our that problem, down. right? Help, oh heard gosh. or hugged. It's a great, look at it. If you put in those keywords in New York Times, you'll get her article. It's a really great piece. You know, a lot of times I, I, I hate all these sort of self-help sure. type articles, but sure. it's like, this is brilliant because it captures in three words yeah. really what somebody wants. Sometimes more often than not, people actually don't want advice. They almost kind of know what they need to do. Yes. And the most important, it's, I always say you should never do a kid's homework for them, right? They're going to have to slog through the multiplication tables. They're going to have to figure out why, you know, why a war was fought or, yeah. you know, why a sentence is structured the way it is. They've got to figure that out. So we don't have to help them with the homework, but we can sit with them when they're crying about how hard it is and empathize with them. But different people want different things. And it's that helped, hurt, or hugged. Sometimes somebody just wants you to envelop them, whether physically in their arms or just sit with them while they're crying. And I, I thought that that was the wisdom somebody was using with a small child. And I couldn't think of anything more universal for adults. So I thought that was a great, a great insight. I think it's a testament to what you do so well, Dr. Romney, that you're open to learning from other experts. Always, right? always. I love that because that's how the sign of a good doctor to me in general is one that's mm -hmm. open to research and mm -hmm. asking around <laughs> as opposed to one that just says, well, this is what you have to do. And that's that. Cause then I'm like, wait, 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 wait you know, everything, what? No, uh, no, no I don't know nothing. Right. I know that. That's, I feel the same <laughs> way. That is my life. I know, I know less each day and I just hope to find some more like good, mm -hmm. good information somewhere. I've also heard you talk about how narcissism is a disorder of self-esteem. And I'm fascinated by this because 
I'm wondering, I want you to explain that and break that down for my listeners, but I also want to know, does that mean that a narcissist can heal? Right. So I, I think, you know, again, that, that verbiage was more from a guy named uh, Dr. Ray Baumeister, who's okay. a professor, I believe at Florida state, he may be retired, but that's where he was. And the, and, and I, I mean, I hate even thinking of narcissism as a disorder, but let's just use that, that term for a minute, because okay. it is a dysfunction in okay, self-esteem. Fair. So here's what we think about when we think about narcissism, we think about the person whose ego is so big, who thinks that they're so great, but that's a disorder because it's an unrealistic appraisal of themselves, right? So the more important thing than self-esteem is self-appraisal, how we evaluate ourselves, right? And it needs to be realistic. And realistic self-appraisal means that we know what we're good at, but we also know what we're maybe not so good at, what we're interested in, what we're not interested in. We're able to see ourselves as a whole person and be self-aware of our own abilities. That self now self-esteem is sort of self-valuation. And to me, eh, it's a secondary interest because if you can appraise yourself accurately, then you will value yourself accurately. You'll say, listen, if we you come to house my house for dinner, eh, maybe you don't want to count on me for the main course. I, every so often I pull a rabbit out of my hat, but we might want to do take-in kind of thing, right? So I would not go and, and plate out a 12-course meal for people because I know I can't do that, right? That's yeah, an yeah. I, that's not me putting myself down. So no, for it's a, it's a, right. It's, it's all, accurate. It's accurate. And that's such a shift sort of from this. And then you'll continue what you're saying, but this, this thing that we've been taught, certainly the nineties or the early two thousands of like, just have the swagger, just like be cocky and confident and all of that. I'm like, but it's not over. It can't be overarching. None of us are good at everything. I'm no, but we, like four we, things and then I'm happy. No. Right. And too much of the, of the, yeah. the, the industry of, of growth and positivity is like, you're great. Am, are you great? I mean, you no. might be really good at something. Right. I don't know. I don't, I'm not great. None of us right, are great. Right. So it's, but, but in narcissism, you have a disorder. Let's use that term disorder of self-esteem in that the person not only doesn't have any form of accurate self-appraisal, they have a delusional sense of who they are in the world. They, it, it's a delusion in that they really think like, they're all that they've got the swagger they've got the um the grandiosity um the arrogance the pretentiousness all of that now here's where it's it's all awry all of that pseudo look how great i am is a defense against their really 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 core insecurity right they're very insecure people because you show me someone's swagger i mean in some ways my heart is sort of like I get sad for them because what I do is I see like a four-year-old, like, oh my gosh, like you, don't, like you can keep up with the other kids, Yeah, but you're not a four-year-old. You're a 44-year-old and the right. things you're doing are harmful. So go figure it out. So that goes to your next question. Can they not be helped? It's very difficult to help someone who doesn't think that there is something not right with them. Okay. And so if they think they're all that and they grandiosely believe I'm all this and I'm great and I know best and whatever it is, I've got it all figured out that they're not going to be great candidates for doing the self-exploratory work, mostly because it's too threatening to them. It's like this volcano of shame. And for that to come out primitively, they actually believe it would destroy them because if the world, even the therapist saw that shame then they're, they're, they're done. They're toast. They're found, they're seen. And they're, and it'll all, it is sort of, it's almost like a, they experience it psychologically as a cataclysm. And that means being, that means being 
contrite and self-aware and taking ownership and not shifting blame and taking responsibility, having empathy, having compassion, caring what other people think. I mean, caring what people, other people feel, they, they care deeply about what other people think about them, but mm. it's a, all of that is a huge phase shift. In some cases, people become narcissistic because they, they had traumatic histories. So they need trauma informed history, uh, trauma informed therapy. Some people become narcissistic because they were overindulged as kids. That's actually a tougher nut to crack because at least for the people with the trauma origins, we might actually be able to get part way up the hill by doing the trauma informed yes. work. Yes. In fact, I think about the people in my life that not struggle, I wouldn't say that they struggle with being narcissists, but the ones who sort of vacillate between they think they're so great, they think they're nothing. It's it's transparent right, or it's right. clear that there's, and I'm not a th therapist, so I, I don't know anything really, but as a human to human, I can so clearly see where there's damage or broken, mm -hmm. not that I understand the roots fully or any of that or how mm -hmm. to fix it. But most of these people will have their moment where they're like, you know, I just feel so bad. Like I just, I'm a mess. Like I'm not okay. And right. it's clear that it's bravado that they're leading with rather than an actual thing of thinking they're all that in a bag of chips. Like I don't, I don't know many people that I, that I think really think they're that great. I kind of feel like it's usually obvious that something else is going on well it tends to but be performative right like i think that you know it's the what what is it's very very remarkable when you're in the presence of healthy empathic self-aware self-esteem i can count on one hand the number of times i've been in the presence of that yes. and it is yes the most gorgeous thing to behold yes. because they're because yes. there's nothing they very much are able to to lead, to just sort of sit back in what they know they know it they know they know it they don't have to hit anyone yeah. over the yeah. head with it they they're mm -hmm. humble but they're simultaneously yeah. humble but also know but they're not bragging it's just sort of they know there's a comfort that's the only way i could describe it yeah the way they sit is that there is a comfort they don't feel the need to penetrate the conversation with what they know yeah. and they're they're also very good about and i've watched this happen one time somebody who i knew was actually extraordinarily expert in what he did and just to, the way he puts himself together, he doesn't look like that. And other people were yammering on and on and on and on. And I'm thinking to myself, oh my gosh, like it was almost like watching a grandmaster show up to a little kid's chess club. You're like, oh my gosh. Yeah. And never shut them down. Never. Just very humbly right. listen to them. And he said, oh, some of my thoughts are this and this. And I actually think the other <laughs> people were actually quite narcissistic in the conversation. I think at the end of it, they didn't even realize they were the presence of this greatness. That was their loss. Because if they just shut up, they would have actually recognized yeah. that this person they were with was a privilege. And I, and the guy, the friend and I left and I was like, what? And he said, I mean, I, I don't, I know what I know. You know, I know it doesn't matter. Right. right. And that was it. right. Yes. Okay. So back to what I was asking, let's say someone has sort of gone to that dark side and has become really narcissistic or really is becoming a narcissist, but they do recognize there's something going on can they be helped if they're willing to do the work if they're willing to part way i mean it really depends i mean narcissism is on a continuum it's not an either or okay. person's that you either are a narcissist or you're not a narcissist right it's not that that it's on a continuum and i think i'd say at the more severe end of it probably not much i don't okay. even think you'd have the insight to say that okay something's not right here 
<clears throat> one thing that often leads narcissistic people to have insight is that their life starts blowing up. Hmm. Their marriages start falling apart. Their work might start falling apart. They might find themselves in a public scandal. They may get called out in a harassment scandal. Their kids don't want to speak to them. Whatever They may have a co-occurring issue like addiction or something like that. That ramps up. They don't think they need to get help and they keep drinking or abusing or whatever. And that all culminates in whatever it does, an accident or a public humiliation or something. So they that kind of rock bottom is sometimes what will make a narcissist look up and say, I got to do something. The problem is, even when that rock bottom gets hit in whatever form it gets hit, the propensity for them is still to blame other people. Mm -hmm. This is my parents' fault. This is my wife's fault, my partner's fault, my this's fault, my business partner's fault, the world's fault. <clears throat> the world isn't fair to this kind of group of people anymore, whatever the hell it is, that they're always going to find a way to blame. And that capacity to not do that anymore. Like I said, in some cases, you'll really get some real purchase in that with trauma-informed work. Um, you have to be motivated. And here's the other problem is that the kind of therapy that somebody would need to really dig deep into what we call, these are called characterologic issues when you're narcissistic or any of this other stuff. It's long-term, it is consistent. And for a lot of these clients, narcissistic people are 66 times, 60, 66% more likely to drop out of therapy. So they're mm. much more likely to drop out just when the therapy starts going to a more emotional space. And I'll give you some, you know, anecdotally, I've worked with a lot of narcissistic people in my practice. Sure. I've since reorganized my practice. So it's not so much that I'm working with people impacted by these relationships, but a few times over the years, a client will circle back and say, doc, I could use a session or two. Listen, I'm, I'm in the compassion game. It's hard to say no. But what fascinates me, sometimes I, these are narcissistic clients I haven't seen for two years, three years, five years, sometimes six years, come in for a, two, a few touch bases. Something might've happened in their life, maybe a death or something like that, illness, diagnosis, whatever. And you know, it's, it's a way for me to see where they're at to give them a, a referral. Nothing changes. Mm. I, had this, I have had this experience happen in the last six months and I'm thinking, nothing changed. I mean, I was actually sitting there thinking, is this person saying exactly the same thing they were saying to me five years oh, ago? And here's the difference. That's exhausting. The person, it is absolutely, it's not only exhausting, it's sad because they simply cannot get out of their own way. Whereas with clients who do not have the, they're called antagonistic personalities. So it's a bigger umbrella that narcissism sits under. And a person doesn't have an antagonistic personality, and in fact, has more of agree an agreeable personality, we see much more progress. They're actually integrating what the therapist is saying, because you've got to remember that those that core defensive structure in a narcissistic person, it's like concrete. Mm. So breaking through it, the jackhammer on so that hard. is having yeah. to do the emotional work, right? Yeah. For an, an agreeable person, it's actually quite malleable. If anything, what we're trying to do is build up some sense of, it's okay, it's okay to to set a boundary. It's okay to speak up. It's, it's okay to put your needs, you know, primary from time to time. Um, it's okay to grieve, whatever it is. So for the narcissistic person, those things like grieving are too vulnerable, but so I have to say that obviously the treatment literature is not very promising. There's never been what we call randomized clinical trials, which is a term for doing a therapy or a treatment in a way that we can really say, 
this has shown it's this actually works. And the kind of therapy that's needed week after week for years is only accessible to the richest of the rich. So, you know, and narcissism cuts across all sort of social statuses and everything. So we have a lot of un or undertreated people out there and they're going to drop out even if they do have access. So can, can a person be helped? Are there unicorns is really what you're asking me. Sometimes, sometimes, I mean, I think we can move the needle a little bit. Um, The challenge becomes that needle will move As a therapist, we might notice that the needle moved, but what you'll see is that the people in their lives will say there are too many wounds. There's been too many hurts. They get it right now. One out of every three times used to be, it used to be one out of six times, but that means two out of three times are still getting it wrong. wrong. And it's Mm -hmm. just too much. And, you know, listen, we can't expect the entire world, the non-narcissistic people, as it were, to carry this constant burden of forgiveness. Right. It doesn't work. Right. you were talking about blame and, and sort of this idea that that each person has to own whatever is, you said it far more eloquently, but we have to own our stuff. We have to own our mm-hmm. shit. And so when I think about wounds and trauma and much of it can happen in childhood and it doesn't always look like an overt something, it could be sort of a, a what I think of as almost, um, it's not benign, but I'm going to word it as benign neglect where the parents are around and devoted to their children they're not really accessible, even if they're around mm-hmm. and devoted to their children, like they're home, but they're not really emotionally paying attention. Right, and I right, think about right. many people born around, I was born in 1970. And I think that generation, mm-hmm. my parents only cared that I was, you know, breathing or whatever, which I often mm-hmm. say to my own kids, I'm like, I don't care what you do as long as you're breathing, but I also care about their mental health because it's a different, it's a different age. Um, but my parents never checked in with mm-hmm. emotional wellness, mental health. They didn't, it just wasn't part of the vernacular and it wasn't part of the, no. how any, any of us lived. Mm-hmm. And I, and I definitely see I, in my own experience and my listeners know this, you know, there was a, there was, there was abuse that I had to separate from, you know, the abuse over my body and my mother, the way she handled my body, not being the kind of body that she thought I should have, or being an extension of her body or whatever. And that sort of mixed with, um, her fierce unwavering love for me like there was this weird like conflict that I experienced because I knew I was wholly loved and maybe not wholly I was love 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 loved except when I was too fat or whatever mm-hmm. which is yes conditional but it's conditional yeah conditional but at some point you know at some point and this isn't to say that I'm healed and I'm great and I'm wonderful because I'm not I'm as broken as the next person and constantly working on myself like like we all need to but at some point I stopped blaming her and at some mm-hmm. point I, I took ownership of, you know, I'm 53 years old. So like, I can't be crying. You know, my mommy did this anymore at some point. Right. So how do you figure out where to acknowledge the bad stuff that did in fact happen? Cause that's real and that causes trauma and that causes something to happen in our wiring, especially when we're young, but like grow the fuck up and it's irresponsible and not okay to pass on that abuse to somebody else or that behavior toward toward somebody else because you don't want to own it as your own when it's right. become so, your own. It's so right? I think that it, it gets so it gets so subtle, right? I think we have to understand yeah. where we come come from, right? And so good, bad, and indifferent because sure. you know th- there's a whole spectrum of adverse childhood experiences, right? There's a whole spectrum of that. And there's also a whole spectrum of of temperament. And mm. that matters. Because that range of adverse childhood experiences can be what we're calling like emotional 
lack of emotional presence, um, lack of mirroring, maybe even some invalidation all the way to brutalizing abuse, right? Neglect, starvation, all of that. Sure. The chaos, all the things we expect. And then a temperament, temperament is also on a continuum ranging from, I'm going to call it difficult temperaments. These are kids who are more difficult to soothe from an early age, who are more um, stress intolerant, who are tantrumers, who are inattentive, who are disruptive, who are attention demanding. And then there are kids with temperaments that, I mean, they really are sort of like these, they're just as easy as they come. They're easy, they're sweet, they're resilient, they're, they're, they go with the flow, they're flexible. A lot, a fair amount of that temperament is inborn. It's how the child comes into the world. Mm -hmm. The more flexible and easy that temperament, the more that child is actually going to be able to withstand in terms of that spectrum of adversity. Mm -hmm. What I mean by that is it's not going to, it's certainly going to shape them. Nobody's free of that shaping influence, but in the, when that comes up against that kind of environment, that, that, that sort of easier temperament, I'm going to call it a healthier temperament, but more flexible temperament comes up against Mm -hmm. a more invalidating environment. It can still take a toll. And probably that toll is most likely going to be things like anxiety in adulthood and that Mm -hmm. sort of thing. But when you take that more difficult, crumbly temperament, Mm -hmm. okay, we call that a biological vulnerability and it comes up against that invalidating environment, forget about it. We are talking about lifelong, lifelong psychiatric issues that we are barely ever going to be able to get ahead of. That's a fact. And so this is why early childhood stuff matters so much. Now, is it, it's not as simple as blaming parents. Cause I know some people say, what would my story have been different if I had different parents, no matter what it would have been, we could have had worse parents. You could have had better parents. Your story is going to be different. Of course, There's a point at which a person says something happened to me that something shaped me. And now I am going to have to work with that. It's not about taking responsibility for that. You're not responsible for what your mother did. Nobody's responsible for what their parents did. Something happened. Sure. Okay. And then that the, the, the adult, the evolving adult then has, has the responsibility if you will, or, or the ability, I should say, to to take the actions that will help them actualize to become their best selves. But the more you have this personality stuff in the way, narcissism being a great example, narcissism is like scar tissue that builds up against the narcissistic people tend to have been those difficult temperament kids as, as children. That's why people will say, I, I work with clients who have adult children who are narcissistic. And they'll say, I got three kids and they'll say two of them where it's great. I, we get along. And one of them, they're like, I don't even understand, ragingly narcissistic. And then we'll, we'll, we'll spool it in. And I'll say, sure. tell me about them as a small child. And I'll say, yeah, this was my tough child, you know, definitely from the day they were born, getting into trouble more often. And I kind of, and when I work with people who have young children and they say they've mm-hmm. got that kid who's a handful, it's not to say that that's, it's not a, it's not a destiny. Mm-hmm. It means those kids do need different kinds of parenting and educating. And the problem is kids with those tough temperaments, our school systems are not designed to deal with them. Those kids are pathologized. They're yelled at, they're shouted at, the parents are brought in. The kid almost is, they need to be met where they're at. Mm. And these kids, they actually can, I mean, listen, I, I, I look at people who are actually some of the greatest if you will, innovators, maybe not the nicest people, but some of the greatest innovators in our society 
I would, I'm willing to take the bet that they weren't the easiest kids. If we could find, right. find their parents Definitely. and say, yeah, no, this one was all over the place. And yes. and now it's excused because they're worth a trillion gazillion dollars. Right. But it's the, that's, <clears throat> that's really the, um, that's really the issue. So this is so complex. So when we think about, when I work with clients who've had those difficult childhood experiences, right? It's a recognition that it shaped them. Mm-hmm. It also is a recognition that, there's no, and I forgive my parent for everything. Some things that a parent did were unforgivable. And sure. that unforgivableness course, yes. is, you know, especially if the parent keeps making the same errors in over adulthood. And over again. An Absolutely. adult child can say, I know they had a tough go of it. I know my parents had their own issues. I know this, I know that this shaped me. And as a result, I need to have a certain kind of relationship with this parent or none in order to stay healthy myself. And when a person, the I think where it gets tricky, Jenny, is when people keep throwing themselves back into those parental relationships and keep moaning and bemoaning, why can't it be different? I'm like, because it can't be different. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. By the way, when my mother died 15 years ago, and let me tell you, I miss her every day. I miss her mm-hmm. like so much that I, it, 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 it told, but her death freed me Yeah. and the body stuff so, so much because while she was here, I couldn't really right. work through all of it. And she had apologized. She had come to a place in her own life, even before she knew she was dying, where she had known where she was complicit and known what mm-hmm. she had done and had owned it with me, which was a beautiful thing. But it still lived in my in my cells, right? And mm-hmm. not until she died could I have like this this clarity and greater understanding of what was done to her right. and what she did to me, and could sort of let that you know let that go. And my kids were young enough. Thank God. I mean, sad because I wish she got to see how you know amazing they are. But uh, that I that I could fuck them up in a whole different kind of way. Right. Well, like yeah, I, and the thing is, Jenny, going to your my, point though, yeah. not everyone has that difficult parent die. And so they're carrying that burden right. well into their adulthood. So you had a different kind of loss. Your loss yeah. freed you in other ways. Other yeah. people are are jousting at this window. That's what I'm saying. You're right. That's I'm I'm saying you're totally mm-hmm. right. Cause I don't know what my life would look like if she were still here. And I mm-hmm. and by the way, I wish you were here. Like I I I can't believe she's not still. And I and, and we just lost my dad recently. Like I'm the sorry. whole no parent thing is all of a sudden you're a grown up. And mm-hmm. I know technically I'm a grown up at my age, but like you lose both your parents, you're like, wait, I'm actually a grown up now. Mm-hmm. But um, but I do understand how you're right. If you have to keep going back into it and keep going back into it because the parent is still here, how do you mm-hmm. ever effectively 
get out of it. It's got to be. Really I mean, hard. it's work. You, you, you do. I mean, you, yeah. you do get, I mean, it, it's trauma work. It's somatic work. It's, yeah. um, it's, 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 again, it's recognizing that something happened to you and yeah. that it is a, you know, I always liken life to mm. everyone is standing in the front of a, <clears throat> in the front of a track or the starting gate, if you will. And there's mm-hmm. bags being distributed and some people are given no bag. They're like, go walk. And their track is flat all the way through. And there's some people like, here's a 200 pound backpack. Oh, and by the way, <laughs> you're fun. walking up that track and you're like, that's straight uphill. And they're like, yep, have a nice walk. But everyone has to get to that other side. And some people are carrying hundreds of pounds on their back uphill. And other yeah. people are walking on a, fa- a flat track. Well, I, I mean, listen, you can get metaphysical about this. You yeah. can call it destiny. You could call it luck. Yeah, you but, can call it whatever you will. But, I, but, but Yeah. But Dr. Romney, I always look at life and maybe this is a coping mechanism. I look at life and think that everybody has some struggle, some stripes. Yeah, some, they do. They do. I, I, like who has a yeah. perfectly flat time? No, nobody has a perfect flat. That's my point. So maybe yeah. perfectly flat isn't. Maybe it's, it's, they still have to make the walk. Yeah, right. You true. See what I'm yes. saying? They yes. still have to make the walk. True. It's not like yes. they don't, they get to the right to the destination immediately. There's yeah. still the, the, the walk of it all. And I think that sometimes some of the, the disruptions and empathy we sometimes see is that, you know, I always say that a person who grows up in a, in a space that's validating Mm -hmm. where they felt seen and heard, where they watched caregivers have healthy relationships, where there was no overt, any abuse, Mm -hmm. where people were healthy and where people were adequately resourced. That's a tremendous privilege, right? It's a tremendous privilege. And it's the, it's like the privilege of growing up. I don't know with a trust fund or a lot of money. It's a similar privilege. And with that privilege comes responsibility. And part of that responsibility is to be able to hold space for the idea that not everyone has it that easy. We Mm. live in a very blamey world. We Mm. look at people and say, well, why can't they get their life together? And I want to tell people, why don't you slow down and ask them a little bit about their backstory? Right, right. But we don't have systems in place that acknowledge and, and account no. for that, right? No. Because nobody wants to suffer. That is not a natural desire of the human condition. But it's, it is because of this complex stew of temperament and early environments, the vast majority of people who have children are not qualified to have parent them. They really aren't. I'd say somewhere in the neighborhood of 75% of people have kids probably were not up to the challenge. They had them because they were told they're supposed to have them. They had them because of ego. They had them because of an accident, whatever reason Mm -hmm. they're Mm -hmm. just not up to the task. It's a, I don't think anybody understands how demanding it is to parent correctly from a psychological perspective. And I think the only difference may be is that human beings are a tribal species. And Mm -hmm. in way many generations past prior to the industrial revolution, children were raised in groups you know, groups of caregivers, groups. And so I think that what was happening is that there was probably, and listen, everyone was dead by the time they were 22 anyhow. But the yeah. fact is, is that it was, we we were more, and this idea of the nuclear family doesn't work. The, you know, the idea of a singular caregiver doesn't, doesn't work. work. No, you know, so yeah. all of that is just too much pressure. It's just, it's, it's a system that's not, oh my gosh, it's and so, we it, don't have help. Yeah. We're starting it's, to see the chickens come home to roost on this, of the, of this generation of yeah. kids that was manufactured for, certain yeah. lives and think life to look a certain way. Oh my we're, God. We're seeing the first generation yeah. of kids who are born into a world of social media. I, I mean, again, it's, it's an empirical question. We're going to have to let this unfold. I've never seen rates of anxiety like this in my entire career. I've been, I started graduate and school not, when I was in 1991. Yeah. And so I've been doing this kind of work yeah. in some way, shape or form for over 30 years. And I am telling you now, I've yeah. never seen anything like this. 
it's yeah and even if you're like i look i, I am someone with anxiety both dna and environmental like it's mm -hmm. all wired a certain way and i see but i feel so lucky that my kids who both have a healthy dose mm -hmm. of anxiety i mean they come from it or whatever but they missed that they weren't born into social media they were not mm, on yeah, it same. Yeah, until they're, either, they're yeah. turning mm -hmm. 25 right my yeah. daughter's mm -hmm. 23 my son's almost mm -hmm. 25 so mm -hmm. they just missed that yeah. and i don't know what it would be like for Very the different. kids today i don't even understand i don't even mm -hmm. it's brutal because i even see like what they see and all of us at least have the awareness mm -hmm. to know like that's fake or this is not but still you get that all of us don't have even that when you know it still gets in there all of us right. don't have that awareness i don't agree with that i i'm struck by the number really? of people who are who will come to sessions distressed yeah. and say i know this is fake but i'm seeing oh this. no i'll have I'm that moment that. of course right? wait you know Dr. so, Robbie, so despite yes, right despite the knowing it's yeah, like fake. a cognitive dissonance like like i know well, this it's, is it's, not a real story and yet it's not a real story and, and, but there are real people and it's a, you know, I, I'd imagine it might be like what it must've been like watching a situation comedy or a television show back in the sixties or seventies when the person was, had a perfectly clean house or something like that. And those were things that were valued as mm. women's labor at the time mm. and saying, how come my mm. house isn't so neat and tidy or something? I don't, maybe Please. that, but that yeah. was, you know what I'm saying? So even as a television show, it was yes. fictionalized people still view that as aspirational. Yes. So I think that what's even more dangerous is now these people on social media are your friends and it's a, um, your friends are now the billboards. It's, it's a strange way to live. It is a strange way to live. I, I think you are so good at, at what you do, Dr. Romney. And what I really appreciate is that you um, have said several times this idea that all of this kind of personality stuff and relationship stuff uh is, is a spectrum mm -hmm. and that oh, we don't yeah, right yeah. Mm -hmm. we don't have to to worry that if somebody behaves one way one time that all of a sudden it's pathological right. or if our kids do this that that means this is not forever or right. our uncle did the following you know that there's there we are human beings fallible human beings and also the, the worst control group ever because we're human beings mm -hmm. so um to have someone who's so educated and so practiced in this acknowledge the fact that not everything is a sickness i think is really important yeah no it's not i think a lot of it's not a sickness i mean right. a lot of i mean some of it is of course it is and that's illness, and there's biological listen to your cause. podcast right. i mean there it but is we you know a lot of it is, it is i think it's i mean a lot of this is a response to a sick society. Yeah. I mean, we are, oh. it is a cruel society. People need help, can't get the help. People who are not sufficiently resourced can't get more resource. Mm -hmm. Hardworking families have can't find places to live. I mean, mm -hmm. if people, and then that's why I say that when people say, well, there's this whole mental health epidemic, I want to say, slow down, folks. Mm -hmm. Let's look at the world because yeah. it's almost as though if a town had a bunch of poisonous gas floating around and everyone in the town got sick, yeah. They would say, we've got to stop the gas leak. Right. We're living in the midst of a gas leak. Right. And as the oh. most vulnerable citizens in a culture go, so goes the rest of that culture. And that's where we're at right now is that we are, we are mistreating so many human beings right now that we are seeing a global epidemic of not okayness. Mm. Mm. I mean, I could seriously talk to you for hours. I'm not going to do that to you because you get to have a life, <laughs> but, um, no, it's just, this is all, you're right. It's like the, the 
there's a bigger issue at play than just each individual's experience. And I think, mm -hmm. I think there has to be acknowledgement, understanding and empathy because you're right. It's like a, it's like societally, it's a mess. It's the challenges. And when we talk with, when I work with people who are experiencing narcissistic relationships, that these relationships are a theft of ourselves in order to make these relationships work. We have to become what they want us to be. Mm. Right. And so we sacrifice our true selves. We sacrifice our needs, our wants, our aspirations, because if we do that, especially for people with narcissistic parents, those things will be shamed. They will be invalidated and they'll disrupt the attachment needs of the individual, right? Attachment's a human need. Love is a human need as is connection. All these things are human. So we're going to do what we need to do to maintain those things. And if you're surrounded by people like this, you will have sacrificed yourself to get a very human need, which is love, mm. which means that the journey back to the self to who you are and what you're about doesn't mean we get to go out there and do what we want all the time and sleep till noon. And it means, it means that we feel safe in, a, in our spaces, wherever, whatever those are, we feel safe to express who we are and what we want and be okay with expressing emotion and feel as though we are loved and valued in, 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 the appropriate spaces in our life, our bosses are of love and value, but I like in not, close relationships and things like that, asking but to like be loved. <laughs> that we're being loved right. and valued without condition. Doesn't yeah. mean you get to do with your people say, well, unconditioned means I could cheat on my wife and she's no, going to no, love no, me. It no, does it not. doesn't. Please. It means that it means that you are loved. Yes. And if you did a bad thing, that person might say, you know, I do love you. I can no longer be in this relationship yeah. with you right, because, because you, you betrayed my trust, yeah. right? You, you are still loved. The vast majority of human beings have not had that experience of having those barriers to being their true selves removed. They're there for so many folks. Mm. And so to create that kind of authentic, actualized, growth-oriented life, it's, it's a tough one in the way the world is right now. And most people don't even feel the permission to even be that or do that. I mean, it's, it's a bit, it's a heavy lift for my clients mm -hmm. to even be able to express a need. Some of them even say like, I feel terrible asking this. Can we move my session next week? And if I can do it, yeah. I will. I can't always do it, of course, but if I can, hard. I will. Yes, yeah. it makes, yeah, it's an uncomfortable moment. For hard people. for them to ask. Uh, you're amazing, Dr. Romani, doctor spelled out Romani, R-A-M-A-N-I on Instagram. Uh, check out her podcast, Navigating Narcissism. It's so compelling. It is Thank so you. darn compelling. Uh, and you learn. It's compelling and you learn. So I, that's I appreciate like, that. Thank those you. Those two things together, fantastic. I am at Just Jenny Hot on Instagram, on TikTok and Twitter and Threads. I mean, just Jenny Hutt on threads. Like Jenny Hutt, one more thing. I know, right? Just what we need. And there I am threading away. Uh, thank you so much for being on my podcast. I really, I really enjoyed speaking to you. Thank you so much, Jenny. It's my pleasure. I hope this helps your listeners and gives some clarity. I mean, I think these, these issues can create clarity, but also confuse us just as much. So I hope this was helpful. <laughs> yeah, I think it was helpful. I think, I think just you. the idea of spectrum is going to help a lot of people. Thank you so much. Thank you. My pleasure. Take good care.